Luke on purpose butts these two stories against each other. And what a contradiction, right? I mean, in the one story, we have Jesus uh, weeping over the city, looking down on Jerusalem with tears in his eyes. And in the next story, he's a madman in the temple, dumping tables over, chasing goats around. And Luke knows what he's doing, right? He's writing this story to Theophilus, and he knows that these two stories butted up against each other. It's going to make us go, wait, what? Now this is the same guy? So I want us to look deeply at both stories, and then I want us to see what ties them together and what's different. So in the first story, uh, Jesus had just finished marching through the streets where the people are standing around him saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Cheering him on, woohoo, Jesus number one. And then they're, they're, they lay down palms and they put it, and Jesus is being celebrated. And he comes to that place overlooking Jerusalem where he can see the city spread out in front of him. The Dome of the Rock wasn't built yet, so the skyline is dominated by this massive white building that Josephus writes about that's the temple that you can see from miles away, and it it dominates the skyline. And Jesus, looking at that city skyline, gets tears in his eyes because he knows that just 40 years down the road, this is going to be a very different scene. Right now, it's the hustle and bustle of commerce. Things, people are coming in, going out. It's a city that stretches out. It's one of the largest cities in the Near East. And it's one of those kind of cities where people from all over the world are there. And Jesus is looking at that city. And he, because he's God, knows the future. Jerusalem in 66 AD was controlled by the Jews. There had been a revolt, and they had ran the Romans out of the city of Jerusalem. There was a fort very near Jerusalem that all the Roman soldiers withdrew to, and they sat back to see what was going to happen. So for three years in Judea, there was self-rule. It did not go well. This faction fought against this faction who fought against this faction. And these people would assassinate the leader of this group. And these people would undermine this people. And it was just absolute chaos. There was no peace. There was no, it was just chaos. And so Titus was chosen by the Romans. Go fix that situation. And so Titus went and got the troops from that fort. And they... Forty years after that Jesus is standing on this hillside, that very same hillside, Titus will occupy. And what he will do is, as all the pilgrims come into the city, most estimates, Josephus suggests that when Jerusalem was full to capacity for Passover, there was a little over a million people there. Probably six hundred to 700,000 normally, but with people who came from all over the country to come to Passover, a little over a million, 1.1 million people in the, bill, in the city. So Josephus stood back and let the city fill. And then he sieged them. Nobody went in, nobody went out. So now you've got a city that's got three or 400,000 extra people in it. It was like they had the sugar bowl going on and nobody could leave. There was no food that was going to come in and there was no water that was going to come in. And it didn't take long for those people to get really hungry. 
They say the difference between garbage and gourmet is about 24 hours. Something that you would look at and go, ooh, if you hadn't eaten for 24 hours, you'd be stuffing it in your face. It didn't take long for people to start robbing from each other. It didn't take long for cannibalism to break out in the city. The whole city fell upon itself. People were trying to sneak out. One of the factions in trying to make people fight because everyone was scared of the Romans decided to destroy one of the caches of food, which of course made everybody really happy. And so they're killing each other, and then the Roman soldiers are standing outside building ramparts to come up the walls. In two days... After Titus said, take that city, the city fell. And as they were approaching the temple, they burnt it to the ground. In fact, in between the stones of the temple, the Romans had put gold to make it beautiful and glisten. And so what the Roman soldiers did was they built fires around the base of the temple walls so that that gold would get soft and they could just push the walls over and collect the gold out. It was said that in three months period, the city went from a city that was a thriving metropolitan area to a place where you couldn't even tell it had been inhabited by humans. It just looked like desolation and desert. Josephus wrote of this time, it was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundations that there was nothing to make those that came thither believe it had ever been inhabited. This was the end which Jerusalem came to by the madness. An otherwise city of great magnificence and a mighty fame among all was brought to the point to where every tree was cut down, every garden was laid waste, and as Josephus said, you couldn't even tell that anybody had ever lived there. Imagine going to pick a neighborhood, Tillerson Bend. I'm not picking on anybody at Tillerson Bend. I'm not saying that you're about to get siege, but walking down the streets of Tillerson Bend and not being able to tell that there had ever been a house there. Because every stone had been knocked down, every piece of wood had been burnt, every tree had been knocked down, cut down. Now Jesus, 40 years before that happens, is looking at this city. He says in one of the sister accounts of this, I feel like a hen that wants to gather her chicks. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And why did this happen? God had told them, If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. And Jesus says the reason why it was going to happen was because you did not know the time of your visitation. What a greater affront to a holy God than to deny his son who came. And so the wrath of God was barely being held back. And Jesus knew that in just a few years, this scene that I'm looking at will be utter desolation. What a beautiful scene of Jesus looking over the city, loving those people, wishing with everything in him that they would just turn to him and knowing that they would not and what the result would be. And then Luke, again, it's almost jarring. It says, and he entered the temple immediately on top of this and began to drive out those who sold. Now, first, I want us to understand that there are two different stories of Jesus clearing out the temple. In the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have this story, that at the beginning of Holy Week, Jesus clears the temple. In the book of John, in John chapter 2, Jesus clears the temple at the beginning of his ministry. Let me read John chapter 2 to you. John chapter 2 says, in the temple, now this is right after Jesus turned the water to wine, 
in the temple, Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. John MacArthur writes of the two different tellings. He says, the details of the two accounts differ significantly. In the synoptics, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the synoptics, Jesus quotes the Old Testament as his authority. In John, Jesus uses his own words. John does not mention Jesus' prohibition against using the temple as a shortcut, nor Jesus' significant judicial statement, behold, your house is left to you desolate, in Matthew 23. The synoptics do not mention Jesus' remarkable challenge, destroy the temple and in three days I will raise it up, which John says in John 2.19. In light of these differences, it is difficult to see how both these stories could be referring to the same event. This is the second time that Jesus cleansed the temple. He did it at the beginning of his ministry and he did it at the last of his ministry. Now, any of you who have had children have cleaned up a room walked out, and seemingly miraculously, the room was destroyed again. And how frustrating that can be. Any of you who have more than one person living in a house has walked into the kitchen, cleaned the countertops, put the dishes away, walked out, checked on the news, see what was happening, walked back in the kitchen, and it looked like a tornado tornado hit it. So imagine Jesus' frustration. I've already cleaned this up once. All right, so let's talk about what's going on here. To really understand why Jesus is so angry, we have to understand what's going on. When God gave Solomon the plan for the temple, the outer courtyard was designed as a place that Gentiles could come to. You see, as non-Jews, we wouldn't have been allowed into the holy place, the place where sacrifices were made, the place where the table of showbread was. We wouldn't be allowed in that because we're not Jews. The outer courtyard was for the nations. That was where people who were seeking God, who were trying to understand what God was doing, could come and they could pray. This was the sanctuary for the nations, a place of prayer. Well, over time, several things have happened. One of those is that it was a place for there were, where you could make, take out a loan. In the parable we looked at a few weeks ago, we saw the story of the ten minas, and when the king says to the guy, you could have at least put my money in the bank, and then I would have gotten interest, the direct Greek word that he uses is you could have put my money at the table. This is exactly what it's talking about. If you had $100 that you couldn't, you didn't have a mattress to put it under, there were no such thing as banks, so what you could do is you could go let the money lender have that $100, and then he would give it to somebody who needed $100, and then he would charge interest, and you and that money lender would kind of split the interest, just like a bank today. And so part of what was going on is in that courtyard, you had people who were in there arguing and debating about loan and money in a kind of a, so it was a bank. You had people in line to go to the teller, I need my money that I gave you. I gave you $100. No, you just gave me $90. No, I gave you $100 right here is the stone tablet you saw. And that kind of a thing going on. So that's loud and boisterous and everybody's talking and people are arguing. If you've ever seen the floor of the stock exchange, I remember the very first time I worked for Dimension Data, uh, uh, Dane Rauscher, and I was on the floor of the stock exchange. It seemed to me like total and complete chaos. I don't know how anything was done. 
It's like you couldn't hear anything. There was this cacophony of noise. Buy, buy, sell, sell, 3.5, I got this, woo! And then everybody's running, blah, 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 everything's going on, and there's millions of dollars that's trading hands right there. So this is, that's going on. Then you had this situation. So let's say that you were a farmer in Galilee, and you had a sheep. Now the law says that you have to bring a lamb without blemish to be sacrificed, right? And so... The trip from Galilee down up that mountain, but it's actually going south toward Jerusalem, is a long journey. You got to go through mountain passes, you got to go through the woods, you got to go through other villages, and that little lamb's going to get kind of chewed up, right? It's going to get some scratches on him, it's going to get dirty, it's going to get dusty. And so there was a priest whose job it was to inspect the lamb to say whether or not you could sacrifice it if it was without blemish. The priest would look at your lamb and say, nope, he's dirty, he's all scratched up, you need to get another lamb. For the small set price of $49.95, right here, I'll sell you a lamb. So the same priest that was inspecting your lamb would be the one that would sell you a good lamb. And then he would say, I'll tell you what I'll do, I'll give you $5 for your lamb so that you don't have to deal with him anymore, and I'll sell you one for $50. He'd take your lamb and then sell it to the next sucker that came down. So the priest had turned what originally started as a way to help people who were coming from a distance to be able to buy animals so that they could sacrifice it, had turned that into a way to rip people off. So you had this going on. So on the one side, you've got people in here who's, who's selling money, and they're, they're back and forth. They're getting there. They're, hey, oh, you owe me 50 bucks. No, I do not. It was 25. You got this going on. Plus, you got, man, man, you got, hey, there's nothing wrong with my lamb. What are you talking about? I see some scratches on his leg. Well, of course there's some scratches on his legs. The one you're selling me has got scratches too, you loser. So that's going on. So now this courtyard is I, loud with noise of animals and sheep and goats and cows and they're all pooping and they're all making noise and you got people arguing. This also was going on. Remember the story when Jesus said, somebody hand me a coin and they handed him a denarii and he said, whose picture's on this coin? And the guy said, Caesar's picture. And Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar. If you pick a coin today, just grab, grab a coin. On the back it says, United States of America. So give unto America what is America's. Well, you weren't allowed to bring that filthy Roman money into the temple. Everyone was required to tithe and to give of their, their, their money, but they couldn't pay in the money that they used. And so what they would do is that in the bank area, there were the sheep and the goats. There would be people there, and they would say, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take your $50 in filthy Roman money, and I'll give you 35 in beautifully minted temple money. And they were ripping the people off that way. And again, it's loud and noisy. And this place that had been set aside by God for the nations to be able to come before God and be introduced to him, they had turned into a place where people were getting ripped off and stabbed in the back day after day after day. And the noise and the cacophony of things that were going on. And this is in the middle of God's temple in the very place that God had set aside for prayer. And Jesus walks in and says, what are you doing? Enough! 
stop it. This is my house. This is my place. This is my father's house. How dare you rip people off in this same place? And we see that immediately when that happened, the question that was brought to them is, who do you think you are? Now, how do we bring, I really enjoyed doing that. How do we uh, bring those two stories together? Here, on the one hand, Jesus standing up on the mountain going, oh, I just want to gather you in. And on the other hand, a raving madman that walks into a place that society had accepted for centuries could be used like this, kicking over tables and making a cord or braiding some cords together and whipping some sheep out of the church. How do we justify that? How do we, how do, what do we do with that? Now, I want to lead with this. We're going to look at loving people, because we all tend to go in one of two directions, right? We all tend to be the table flippers, right? Everything, we got to deal with this. Or the person who, it's going to be okay, sweetie. And so when I'm talking about the table flippers, what we're not talking about is just being a natural-born jerk. This week, I gave, I gave blood on Friday, and so I went into the place, and you know, everywhere you go, you got to wear a mask now, so I got my mask on, so I go in to give blood, and I'm sitting on the, the table, and I got my arm out, and so I'm sitting there, and they're, I'm, they're, I'm bleeding into the bag, and these two girls are talking, they're in their 20s, and they're talking, and it, I, I'm 50 now, so I guess I've just gotten to a point to where that kind of chatter just, you know, gets on my nerves. And, oh, my gosh, you know what she said to me when that kind of thing is going on? And they're going back and forth. And I have gotten so used to wearing a mask that I don't have to worry about my expression. <laughs> that the lady looked at me and could tell that my expression was like, <laughs> really? And it jarred her. She, she looked at me and was like, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. I'll just be more professional. My bad. And I thought to myself, okay, this is a bad habit. As a preacher, this will get you fired. So that was just me being a natural-born jerk. There's a lot of people who get in trouble, and they say, uh, well, I'm getting persecuted for Jesus' sake, and they ain't. They're getting persecuted because they're a jerk. That's not what we're talking about. Here we have two situations. We have the trending on the one hand of the sons of thunder. And John we read, or in Luke, we read the story of um, Jesus sending messengers ahead of him in Luke chapter 9 who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparation for him. The people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Some of us trend in that direction. We're the table flippers. We want to look at people and go, you're going to hell. Some people trend in the other direction. The judge not lest you be judged. The, the folks who are, you know what, we just, we just got to be there for them. And you know what, honestly, if you've got a family member who is drug and alcohol, substance abuse kind of a situation, and you're enabling to do them, you're helping them commit suicide. It's just slow. And so both of those in the extreme are wrong. On the one hand, 
nobody got saved from getting yelled at. And on the other hand, I had a professor in seminary that, I, that called this air conditioning the bus to hell. All you're doing is making them comfortable as they go to hell. It's not helpful. And yet we see in Jesus a balance. When necessary, Jesus told the truth. He did not shy away from the fact that he flipped tables. I actually uh, had a t-shirt for a short period of time, and it somehow disappeared. I have a feeling that my wife disappeared it, but it said, um, what would Jesus do? And on the back of it, it said, sometimes that answer entails flipping tables and whipping people. Um, But he told the truth. We see that balance in a story that we're all familiar with, a woman caught in adultery. In John chapter 8, Jesus was teaching, and some, some of the, the fancy religious people brought him a woman. And he said, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, so what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So imagine the scene here. Jesus is teaching, and all of a sudden there's a commotion, and this woman gets drugged out in front of Jesus. These men didn't care anything about the law. If they did, where's the guy? If they really cared about the law, where's the man? If they caught her in the act, the man was there. They didn't care about the law. They wanted to make a point. They wanted to catch Jesus. And so they dragged this woman out. Imagine her humiliation. Imagine how she must have felt as the crowd snickered and laughed and pointed their fingers What do we do with this woman, Jesus? Jesus kneels down and just starts drawing in the dirt, which is a weird response, right? So they're all, so what do we do? They're telling Jesus what the law says, and we know that Jesus is the one that gave the law to Moses, but, and Jesus just starts drawing in the dirt. Jesus knows full well that the law says that if a person is caught in the act of adultery, they're to be stoned. He ignores them for a while until the room gets quiet. Okay, whichever one of you guys isn't guilty of sin, throw the rocks. He goes back to drawing, ignoring the crowd. Well, the story is kind of funny. It says that the first ones that started leaving were the old men. The old guys are like, all right, well, we've been gotten. And they ease away. And then the next one and the next one. Woman in front of Jesus, crying. Jesus is just doodling in the dirt. I have no idea what he wrote. I've heard so many sermons trying to figure out what he wrote. And it didn't say. So he finally looks up. There's nobody left. And he says, woman, where are your accusers? Where are the people who are charging you with this? And she says, there's... No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And from now on, go and sin no more. You see the balance there? He didn't just say, go, you're free. He knew that the behavior that she was participating in was destructive. Don't do this anymore. But he loved her. It was about the person For everybody else in that scene, it was about making a point. They didn't care about the person. 
He cared about the person. In the scene as Jesus is looking over Jerusalem, he, if you really think about this, both of those scenes are showing emotion for the same thing. And the one, the emotion is, is these people will not turn to me and I know the destruction that's coming to them. Oh God, please! And he's crying because he can see the people who are going to be destroyed. The reason why he's so angry is because by turning God's house into a den of thieves, those people are pushing people away from God. In both scenarios, Jesus is passionate, fiercely passionate about people. If we as a church aren't passionate about people, we need to take the word church out of our name. It doesn't matter what color the carpet is. It doesn't matter what we do over here, what we do over there. What matters is, is that we are loving on people and that we are reaching people with the ultimate thing that they need. And the ultimate thing that they need is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be passionate about getting that to other people. No matter what it takes, no matter what it costs, no matter what we have to give up, no matter what of our own comfort we have to sacrifice. I fear that oftentimes in the church, we do everything in our power to take a battleship and convert it to a cruise ship. And it doesn't work and it makes us look silly. The church was designed to be functioning with a wartime mentality. There are too many people dying and going to hell for us to argue about which song we're gonna sing. There are too many people who desperately need a savior for us to quibble and fight about stupid stuff. I fear that if Jesus walked into many of our churches, he'd be flipping tables because we're driving people away because we're so wrapped around a hub about stuff that doesn't matter all the while, ignoring the very thing that Jesus loved more than anything, that God loves so much he gave his only son. And that's people. And so I challenge you as a church, die to what you like and dislike and let's get in the fight. Let's, with abandon, run after people and preach the gospel as we go. Let's love the people that we're around at work. Let's love the people that we're around at Walmart. Let's love the people that we're around at Lowe's because I know you all go into Lowe's. Um, let's be a church that's known for being passionately in love with people. Father God, Lord, I pray that you apply your word to our hearts. God, I pray that we would live a life that exemplifies you, that we wouldn't ask the question, what would Jesus do? But we ask the question, what did Jesus do? And he loved people. Lord, give us the strength to sacrifice our own no, God, give me the strength to sacrifice my own wants and desires. And with a frugal wartime mentality of simplicity of mission, do everything in my power to make disciples and love on people. Lord, we love you. 
And we thank you for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.